Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Lewis Miller. The mission of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics is to enhance physical and mental well-being and encourage community. And what I mean by community is that I believe that human beings are friendly tribal animals. And when we associate with one another in small enough groups where we know each person by name or at least by face, We're cooperative, collaborative animals. We do good things together. At the very same time, we must be mindful of the fact that there are a small percentage of us, perhaps fewer than 5%, who are aggressive, who are avaricious, and they are predators. And they would rule us if they could. And when they can, they do. So in the words of Thomas Jefferson, we must be eternally vigilant for that group, because eternal vigilance is the price of liberty. Today on Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, we have a prominent psychologist, Dr. Andrew Tatarsky, as our guest. Andrew is a private practice person in New York City, and he specializes in something called harm reduction psychotherapy, which we're going to be finding out a lot more about today. He's also co-director with his partner, Dr. Mark Sell, of the Harm Reduction Psychotherapy and Training Association, both of which are in New York City. Andrew, look like you're going to correct me. Please do. Yeah. Unfortunately, you have an old bio that probably came from the back of my book or something like that. Um, uh, I am uh, the founder and director of the Center for Optimal Living um, in New York City. We're a block away from Grand Central Station. So that uh, collaboration with Mark Sell is quite old news. Thank you. And I, you're right. I was reading it from the back of your book. And the book that we're referring to, I'm going to put on the screen right now for those of you who are are watching on video, and if I can get it on the screen there, Harm Reduction Psychotherapy. Okay, well, harm reduction. I have a history with harm reduction psychotherapy, Andrew, that I think you're going to get a kick out of. Yeah. About about 15 years ago, I was broadcasting, about to broadcast Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, when my sound engineer said to me, well, this is about 10 minutes before we went on in the air, Michaela says to me, hey, Richard, we've got a telephone call here from the White House. And I say, oh, come on, you're kidding. She said, no, they're claiming it's the White House. I said, get a phone number and call them back and let's see, you know, before we take this as serious. So she gets the phone number and she calls back and sure enough, it's the White House. Who's on the phone? Dr. David Murray, the White House drug czar. Mm -hmm. Good afternoon, Dr. Murray. Well, what's going on? Actually, it was good morning. It was nine. It was his time afternoon, like it is yours still morning California time. He said, well, I hear you have Dr. Marsha Rosenbaum on your program today, and she's going to be talking about something they call harm reduction, and it has to do with needle exchange. And I said, well, that's true. That is what I have planned for today. And he said, well, I want to come on the program, and I want to take the other side and talk about that. And I said, well, with due respect, sir, we plan our programs well in advance, and you're calling. It's now seven minutes before we go on the air. I'm really not prepared to reorganize the program and put you on. 
However, you're most welcome to call in because it's also a call-in show. And so during the program, Murray called in. What was Marsha talking about? She was talking about the pioneering work that was being done in harm reduction. And in those days, harm reduction was pretty much about one thing. It was about needle exchange because Marsha and other scientists had figured out that it's much safer both for the chemically dependent people as well as the general public to provide them with clean needles than to let them spread AIDS and other diseases by using dirty needles. Murray put in his argument, we had a good program. That was an introduction. Sometime later, another harm reduction story, I interviewed Joey Tranquina. I don't know if you know, you do, you're shaking your head. Joey comes on the show and he's talking very enthusiastically about needle exchange. While he's doing it, he makes a comment about how he's been treated. And I think he might've been arrested at one point for his program. And he said, oh, that's a lot of bullshit. Well, at the time, I was on a national public radio affiliate. I did that for about 15 years before I switched over to internet broadcasting. Internet broadcasting that we're doing today, Andrew, I can say bullshit. Nobody's going to hassle me. But on a national public radio station, I got a two-page single-spaced letter from the station admonishing me for Joey's comment. Mm. Those were my introductions to harm reduction. Fast forward. 15 years later, here you are with a whole book on harm reduction, and it's not just about needle exchange, it's about psychotherapy in general. With that lead in, give us some information as a background for this program about modern harm reduction psychotherapy. Well, thank you for sharing those wonderful stories. Um, So as you suggest, um, harm reduction emerged uh, during the HIV AIDS crisis when people were dying. Um, IV drug users were dying. Uh, Men who were having sex with men were dying from the spread of, uh, which at the time was a deadly disease. And not only that, you know, this disease was being spread outside of these marginalized communities. And unfortunately, um, as long as it was contained within these marginalized, stigmatized communities, I don't think the uh, society had much concern. But when HIV and AIDS began to get outside and potentially infect the broader community, the community woke up and said, you know, it's more important for us to um, save lives, uh, to prioritize saving lives and helping people stay healthy than having this ideological stance that we should just get people to stop using drugs. So that was really the context. It emerged um, in the context of uh, a deadly illness that was spreading throughout, you know, the planet. Um, and we realized that, you know, this earlier, what we call abstinence-only ideology, that is that, you know, people who are using drugs should simply stop. And that's the only acceptable goal for treatment. Well, uh, that was a goal that was really consigning many, many people to death. So. Harm reduction, you know, initially throughout the 80s and the 90s really spread across the the, the globe um, as a public health response to, um, you know, to HIV and AIDS. 
And also initially it was driven by, you know, activists, that is people in the drug using community and people in the men having sex with men community um, who were just trying to save the, keep themselves and their communities alive by giving harm reduction information, clean syringes, condoms, you know, and spreading a number of different um, activities that could help people stay safe and alive. Now, um, and, and the data suggests that this is one of the most important uh, evidence-supported uh, public health interventions in history. Where there were clean syringes, there were the lowest you know, con- uh, you know, infection rates. Now, fast forward about 10 years, um, uh, there were a bunch of psychotherapists like myself, a small group of psychotherapists who were working in the field with people that were struggling with drugs in the addictions field and began to notice, and this is really my story, that while we, and and that field was dominated by this abstinence-only framework. That is the idea that, um, and based on a disease model, that, you know, you have this addictive disease, the only way to arrest that disease, so to speak, is to commit to complete and total abstinence. And that was often the only way that you could be in treatment. So if you weren't committing to abstinence, you were often being um, discharged from treatment or not allowed into treatment. Um, I began, and I worked for the first let, let me, let, me, let, me inter- let me interrupt you there. Sure. Thanks. You and I and other practitioners have been dealing with this attitude that you just uh, shared of, if you're not going to be abstinent, we're not going to treat you. And some have gone as far as you know, because you've mentioned it in your book, as not being willing to treat someone unless they were clean of the drugs, actually denying treatment to someone if they wouldn't stay clean of the drugs. Yes. That always seemed to me to be like saying to a person who has pneumonia, we're not going to treat you for the pneumonia unless you get rid of the pneumonia, (laughs) or we're not going to treat you for your cancer unless you're cancer-free. It seemed like a almost reprehensible blaming of the patient and saying, unless you get yourself out of your problem, we won't help you with your problem. Well, absolutely. When, when you step back from that and reflect on it as a thinking person, it seems bizarre that you know we won't treat people for the very problem that they're coming into treatment for. Right. Right. I I think so. I began to wonder as I was working in that field. That was my first uh, 10 years in my of my career working in abstinence based disease model treatment. I began to notice that the majority of people were not sticking in treatment, were not getting sober or abstinent and in many cases quitting or being discharged prematurely. And over those eight years, I became increasingly troubled and then horrified uh, about this. And I began to wonder, what, what is the basis for this? And it seems to me that there was this basic disease ideology that has pervaded our culture. And right alongside the so-called addiction as disease model, which stipulates that you must become abstinent to put the disease into remission, there's a whole history of stigma toward people who use drugs. So you've got the confluence of these narratives that have been institutionalized throughout society so that in the addictions field, if you didn't stop using before too long, you'd often be rejected from treatment. And then mental health professionals got 
the version that you were talking about. If you ha- if you were using drugs, you couldn't be effectively treated in therapy. So yes, um, I, I began to um, I, in, the, in the late '80s. I started a small private practice, and I figured the dominant approach was not helping the majority of people. And in my private practice, I started breaking all the rules. You know, you're you're, you're being extremely kind and diplomatic when you say that the majority of people were not getting helped, because that could be 51%. But you and I know that the numbers are really up in the 80 and 90% were not really getting help. Absolutely. Uh, And that's why I'm saying you're being diplomatic. I mean, at one point, some research was done on Alcoholics Anonymous success, and it was less than 4%. You're aware of that. I'm aware of that. And, and, and they were practicing the abstinence model. Now, I understand the, the basis of the, of the disease model, in the, of using it, in the sense that if you say to somebody you have a disease, that removes the stigma that they had before that, which is you're a bad person, the morality judgment that our society put on people that came out of alcoholism, where every drunk is a bad person, immoral, which, as right. you know, comes all the way from the signer of the Declaration of Independence, Benjamin Rush, who who, who was famous for this comment: "If angels could he- in heaven could see how much drinking was going on in the in the earth, they would roll over in there in in, in, in heaven." Mm-hmm. And and he he actually was in his own way the founder of the Women's Christian Temperance Union, which went on to create prohibition. So we have a long history of moralizing against people who have certain, you know, what we now recognize as a disease. So the disease model did help in terms of taking away the stigma, but then we got from the disease model if uh, the, the notion that in order to get well, you got to get rid of the entire disease, which means the abstinence model, which then led us to victimizing the patient. It's, it's been quite a, quite a journey, hasn't it? It sure has. But, but also, I think that um, historically, as you say, the disease model was, if, if we're to be uh, generous and uh, presume good intentions, um, you know, the, the more contemporary um, proponent of the disease model was a guy named E.M. Jelinek, uh, who, who wrote a book and he put forward this model in about in 1960. Um, uh, you know, and, and the rationale was that, yeah, it's better to think of folks as sick than bad or morally deficient. However, I think that the disease model is really problematic because as it is proposed, um, once you've got this disease, you're always diseased. It's a permanent disease. There are these slogans like, once you become a pickle, you can't go back to, becoming, to being a cucumber. It's so it becomes a permanent mark that you, and, and it's so it's dictated that you, if you have this disease, you must accept that you can never touch a drug or a drink again in your life, or you're in denial And inevitably, you're going to relapse, get out of control, and wind up insane or dead. So, Mm -hmm. like, that's the narrative. It's a fear-based narrative. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And and the the disease model, in that sense, is mystifying. And, And, in fact, I think it's problematic because we now understand, I think more progressive people understand, that what we call addiction is a multi-determined experience that actually, I believe, is universal on a continuum. 
So that experience of being out of control, of craving something, of being ambivalent, you know, wanting to do it while not wanting to do it, being in values conflict, is an experience that um, is determined, certainly there are biological elements, but if you scratch the surface of a drug urge and begin to become curious about what that urge is about, more often than not, you find histories of trauma. You find uh, complex suffering, personal, relational, social suffering. So that, from my point of view, to simply call it a disease um, risks sort of collapsing all of that complexity um, and even reinforcing a kind of denial or dissociation of what's driving the addictive process. Right? I totally agree with you, Andrew. Andrew. I agree with you. In fact, I've gone beyond referring to the people who have this as addicts or chemical dependent, and I refer to them now as people with impulse control disorders, ICD, and I believe that they're in the same category as people who overeat, who overgamble. All the overs are impulse control disorders. Right, right. And so they what do you think what, what do you think of that what do you think of that nomenclature does that make sense I I, I like it I, as a description certainly yes. people are having difficulty controlling powerful impulses I want, um, I mean does it do you think it gives the if 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 we use that an impulse control disorder do you think it removes enough of the stigma does it take away the morality but at the same time describe what they're dealing with or is it missing the mark a bit what do you think Well I want to invite us to even go a little further, because let's consider that if I'm turning to a substance because of symptoms of trauma, that is, we know that when people have experienced either intense developmental trauma or big T trauma, that can result in difficulties with, with self-regulation, with managing uh, distress, with sitting with uncomfortable feelings. Um, in a sense, people can are vulnerable to being triggered to feel feelings that threaten to push them over the, the window of tolerance, their, their edge. And so rather than um, sort of fall apart, people may be prone to turning to um, uh, a substance or an activity impulsively, as you say, in an effort to care for themselves, to comfort themselves, to kind of calm down the intensity. So to simply call it a disorder, that, that's, even that may risk not honoring or respecting enough that there's a meaningful attempt, a positive attempt often in that use of the substance. Maybe not the healthiest or the ideal, but if this is the only way I can keep myself together, keep my feet on the ground and not you know, lose it either with rage or with panic, um, you know, it's it's my way of caring for myself, and so oh, I think of the uh, the impulse control disorder in relation to what you're saying, as people who are using the drugs as medicines, the way you're talking about, but they're not controlling their medicine use, so it goes from use which is helpful to use which is deleterious. Absolutely, absolutely. But then if we think about that use as being, um, at least in most cases, arising from some meaningful attempt to care for oneself, um, even over time as it becomes possibly more and more risky and more and more uh, uh, fraught with negative consequences, people now find themselves caught 
in a dilemma. You know, it's helping me, or at least it did help me. This was the way that I coped. And now it's creating problems for me. So um, I'm caught, right? And this is where I think most people that struggle with substances are caught. And this is, for me, the clinical rationale for why we need a harm reduction approach to helping, which says, come on in with your struggles, with your dilemma, with your problematic use. You know, we need to invite people in, accept that they are actively using substances, create alliances with people where they feel safe to begin the process of making sense of, you know, all of those complex meanings and parts of themselves and motives and, you know, attempts to suffer, to, to, to care for themselves, that then enables us to work together to think about healthier choices, healthier alternatives, you know, healthier ways to move away from the drug and hopefully back to how they care for themselves and, and turn to others in their lives, you know, for support. I want to I want to uh, say out loud something you already know but I want our listeners to hear which is that in addition to the group that you're talking about which are certainly there those that have gotten into using various substances as self-medication because of trauma there are also a significant percentage of people who are in trouble with these substances who had wonderful lives as children and they didn't have trauma just as they're they're surprising to the public there are a significant percentage right now of sex workers who didn't come from abusive families who didn't come from parents who were drug addicts who didn't come from parents who were criminals who have basically gone into sex work as a business as a way to make money and some of them are highly educated i've treated people who came from great families, went to great colleges and started drinking beer with the boys on Wednesday night. And then they started drinking on Friday because it's thank God it's Friday. And then there was a party on Saturday. And before they knew it, they were drinking three times a week. And by the time they were seniors in college, they were drinking beer four or five times a week. And by the time they got out and got their first job as a stockbroker, they're now having drinks every night after work with the boys. And I see them eight years later and they're basically drunks. But they 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 got into it that way. Right. That's a whole different way of getting into it. Uh, Right. And then there's others who grow up in great households with a with a whole family of drinkers and there's no abuse. It's a good family. Everything's fine. But they grew up with so much drinking that as soon as they could, they started drinking and then they lost control. And you know that group that I'm talking about as well. So a couple of thoughts I have. One is the problem with the disease model is it sort of says everybody has the same issue. What you're saying is that actually there are many different ways to get into trouble with substances. It's multimodal. Yes. So, so. I have this uh, uh, way of thinking about it. I didn't coin this phrase, but some other psychologists coined the phrase psychobiosocial. That is the idea that that there's always this complex interaction, dynamic interaction between our psychological state, um, our social context, our relationships, and our biology. So um, there's meaning. We talked about trauma and the, 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 the self-medicating response. But what you're talking about is habit and habits that become, in learning terms, overlearned habits that become deeply ingrained and embedded in social uh, relationships. So 
with that peer group. This is the way over many, many, many years I've come to connect and to relate, you know, around alcohol and around beer pong and around over drinking and their status in that, right? So, you know, um, these patterns of drinking then can become deeply ingrained and networked in the brain through neuroplasticity so that once, you know, you you kind of have a kid and you get married and now you're ready to kind of tone it down, you know, the thing has taken on a life of its own. And it's not so simple to just simply decide to stop, you know. So if we give up the disease model, we don't have to give up the notion that people can develop really severe, potentially catastrophic relationships to substances. Um, but thinking meaning, habit, and neuroplasticity, I think for me, makes, makes it very hopeful. You know, if we can identify the meaning and help people develop alternative ways of expressing or caring, we also know something about how to help people change maladaptive habits, you know, and we know that we can learn new things, you know, through neuroplasticity. Um, and so it's another way to think about, you know, supporting people and making these changes. And then on top of that, Andrew, you and I as practitioners have another very serious issue uh, to deal with, which is if we were treating pneumonia or cancer, our patients wouldn't be listening to advertisements to please go out and get more pneumonia and get more cancer. Right. In fact, anything we were treating people for, it would, they would hardly ever see billboards and advertising saying, please go get more of your disease. But when it, and, and that happens to be true of cocaine and heroin. But when it comes to alcohol, our patients are seeing advertisements to go use and they're walking down the street and there are bars and places selling the very thing that we're trying to help them with constantly. Absolutely. So add that to the complex mix that we're talking about, you know, the potential uh, trauma, but also life suffering, uh, which is what we've all experienced for the last few years in the pandemic. And we've seen increases in drug and alcohol use. Um, add to it, you know, the social contexts in which alcohol is highly rewarded. You know, drinking is uh, something that we do in many, many important social occasions. And then add the social meaning uh, and the reinforcement from advertising. Um, uh, there, one of my mentors, one of the, actually the guy who introduced me to harm reduction uh, was a guy named Alan Marlatt, who was a very important psychologist uh, researcher. Um, um, he, he talked about um, the expectancy theory. That is, what we expect from alcohol or from a drug has something to do with the, you know, the attractiveness of it. So what Alan did uh, was he had a beer lab in the uh, University of Seattle, and people would come into the, 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 um, the, the bar, which was actually a lab, and they would be given beer, and then they would observe their behavior. And of course, after the second or the third or the fourth beer, their behavior would change. They'd get louder, they'd get sloppy, and so on. And then they were shocked to be told that they were drinking non-alcoholic beer. And he did those experiments to really illustrate that what we uh, believe and expect has something to do with the effect. Um, and that speaks to exactly what you're talking about, the appeal through advertising and just you know the constant promotion of these activities as making us sexier, making us 
more successful, uh, et cetera, et cetera. The, the association between celebration and champagne has been burnt into the public consciousness. The, the, the association between beer and a hot dog at a football or a baseball game has been emblazoned into people's consciousness. I had a, I had a patient once who actually came from a very successful family of artists, uh, you know, interesting, successful, thoughtful people. And she somehow wound up um, as a sex worker on the street with a group of friends who were heavy crack smokers. And when she came to me, she told me uh, with a lot of pride that she could smoke more crack than everyone else in her crew. The, the, the thing about it was that she said she hated the way it made her feel, but it conferred a certain social status. Status, yeah. Right? So there again, we're talking about the social meaning of a substance may have as much to do with the allure and the effect as the actual physiological uh, effect of the drug. So let's come back to, to specifically harm reduction. We're talking about things that are within harm reduction. And what place does detoxification have in harm reduction? How do you deal with that? Well, certainly, you know, there are some drugs that, you know, have a more obvious effect on our brain chemistry, uh, such that we develop tolerance. We need more uh, just to kind of stabilize ourselves, right? These drugs are the opioids, the benzos, uh, alcohol. Um, these are really the obvious ones. Uh, and uh, these are the ones that we think about, you know, people going into withdrawal if they've stabilized at a certain dose and then can't get the drug, right? And sometimes the withdrawal can be very painful, and sometimes it can even be potentially lethal. So um, when somebody is dependent on, on a drug like that, um, you can't just stop. There's a physiological basis for the need to keep using the drug. In those cases, there needs to be some kind of a detoxification if somebody wants to get off the drug or even if they want to moderate their use. So you can't just go from a very high level of drinking, let's say a quart of hard alcohol a day, you know, to moderation. Um, so the detox, um, first of all, it, 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 it um, you know, there are a number of ways to get there. One could be a taper detox where you taper down your drinking. Another one could be where you, you substitute a medication. Uh, you know, the classic for alcohol is Librium so that the, the Librium would actually take care of the physiological need, and then you could taper down on the Librium. And you could do that detox either on an inpatient basis where you know, you're medically supervised, it would probably be safest, uh, but some people don't want to go inpatient. And in some cases, an outpatient detox can be, um, can be very beneficial. However, and here's where the harm reduction rub comes in, it seems to me Somebody needs to be motivated, internally motivated, to take that step. So, and, and very often, um, there are many, many issues that, may, that need to be addressed for people before they're going to be ready to take that step. So, for example, here's where trauma and biology kind of um, meet. Uh, one of my patients that she, she's given me permission to talk about her um, she came in dependent on um, injecting Dilaudid, which is a powerful 
synthetic opioid. And she was injecting four to five times a day. So she was clearly dependent on this drug. Um, she told me the only reason she came to see me was that she knew that as a harm reductionist, I wouldn't demand that she stop, right? She had two young children, and she was very distressed about her use because she was worried about, you know, the knowledge that most IV drug-using moms are assumed to be negligent, and if she was found out, she risked losing her kids. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, she said she loved injecting Dilaudid and was not ready to give up the drug. So that there was her dilemma, what I talked about before. I did a safety assessment. I determined that I did not think that, that her kids were at risk or that she was at risk, and I took her on to therapy. As we began to inquire into the love of Dilaudid, you know, looking into that urge, what emerged was this history of trauma from the time she was very young, multiple traumas as a young child, as a teenager, uh, as a young adult, a young woman. Um, and what became clear is that we needed to do some trauma processing work, um, and we did for about 16 months. We worked on resolving, understanding and resolving these traumatic experiences. And at a certain point, um, she felt sufficiently uh, resolved and she became highly motivated to detox. She went across the river to a detox in New Jersey and she got off in a week and she ate seven years later. She's never looked back uh, with difficulties with drugs or alcohol. So we can say, boy, it would be great to send somebody to detox or rehab, but if they're not motivated, it may be that they need to do some other work in a harm reduction therapy to address the barriers, address the fears, or address the issues that you know the drug was medicating, in her case, trauma symptoms. I'll tell you a way I dealt with that issue of people not being motivated. Uh, well, I'll go back a little bit. In, in 1979, a, a friend of mine died of a cocaine overdose. Hmm. And, and nobody was aware that you could die hmm. of a cocaine overdose in those days. In fact, cocaine was very popular. And Time Magazine actually put a glass of cocaine in a martini glass on the cover of Time. I don't know if you remember that. And it said the new middle class high. And here my friend dies from it. So I start doing some research. And then another thing happened. A doctor sent, called me on the phone and said, this wife of a very famous skier in Aspen has been hallucinating. They're about to put her in a, yeah. in a, in a mental institution. And would you, would you be willing to see her? So they flew to California to see me. And I took them up to Wilbur Hot Springs, which is a place where I started a health sanctuary in 1972, which is another whole story. Mm -hmm. And I took her there for a week. And what I discovered was she'd been using cocaine and the hallucinations were cocaine hallucinations, which very few people knew about at the time. I wasn't aware of it until I learned it. So I did a little pilot project and I brought a group of cocaine addicts up to Wilbur Hot Springs for a week of detox. And out of that came a whole program. I don't know if you heard of it, but it's called Coke Enders Alcohol and Drug Program, became a national program. The, the foundation of it was one week at a hot springs. That was the part where I say how I motivated them, because there were a lot of people who were thrilled to go to a hot springs for a detox who never would have gone to a hospital or any kind of a treatment program. But when mm -hmm. you said hot springs, it was like, oh boy, that sounds good. I said that there are certain drugs that have um, much more dangerous and painful withdrawals. Uh, 
But I think that every drug, you know, when you're putting a substance in your body over, you know, a significant amount of time, it's going to alter our chemistry somehow. So that even drugs like cannabis, which we think of as relatively benign in terms of their physiological effect, have a much milder but still significant withdrawal, similarly with cocaine. But they're not the kind of withdrawals that will send somebody into seizures or, you know, crawling on the floor screaming. But so with those folks, I think what you did was brilliant and ingenious because not only are you helping folks get into a place where they can clean their bodies, you know, they can detox, so to speak, with healthy living, uh, massage, sauna, healthy food, whatever, swimming, exercise. Um, But they can also have an experience that is compelling to them. And that, for me, that's one of the keys to a good therapy, a good treatment, but also to a harm reduction approach. If we can find the motivational hook, right? So you may not be willing or ready to stop using the drug, but what are you interested in working on? Here, here. Well, my family relationships, mm-hmm. my health, mm-hmm. my anxiety, my trauma. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's start there and let's form our alliance around what's important to you, right? Or in the treatment planning, you know, so you're not interested in going into an intensive outpatient program or a rehab. Oh, but how about, you know, uh, Wilbur Hot Springs? Sure, man, I'll I'll go tomorrow. (laughs) Right. In fact, I'm I'm telling you the truth. I will go tomorrow if if you'll have me, Richard. Plenty Uh, of professionals came to sit in. I let them sit in. It was fun. if, If the treatment isn't more appealing than the symptom or the drug, why should somebody go to treatment, right? So we have to get creative in figuring out what's most important to our patients or the people that we're helping and try to offer them something that really speaks to them. And that's what the the basic ten- harm reduction tenet is of, you know, meet people where they are with respect, with compassion. You know, if we expect them to meet us where we are, and it's a mismatch. You know, there's no basis for an alliance. People feel misunderstood and coerced. And why should they, you know, get started? But here I met this woman, Valerie, where she was. She said, I'm not ready to give up the drugs. I am ready to begin working on my trauma. And, you know, we dove into it together. Interestingly, she even said after she finally got off the drugs, she thought it was possible, and this is completely turns that traditional thinking upside down. She said it might have been the Dilaudid medicated some of the trauma symptoms, turned down the intensity, and really enabled her to do the trauma work with me. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, Mm-hmm. Kind of turns, mm-hmm. you know, that that old assumption, you know, you can't benefit from therapy if you're still using. For those of you who are listening to what Andrew just said, and you're thinking, well, is there science behind it? Consumer Reports did an exhaustive study on various kinds of psychotherapy. And what they found was that the most important variable was not the tactic or the method of the therapist, but exactly what Dr. Andrew Tatarski just said. It was the relationship, the alliance between the patient and the therapist. That is what's critical. 
and they published it. It's a really great study, a Consumer Reports, which I have faith in. It's the alliance, and that's what you're talking about, meeting the patient where they're at rather than viewing them as other or in some way a uh, victim or, or, or the abstinence model, which of course stigmatizes them. Yeah, yeah. that's yeah. what it really needs. And that's the first thing you do in your work, isn't it, is to establish the alliance. That's the first thing. And, and if you think about most people who struggle with drugs have some kind of suffering in their past. Not all, as you pointed out, but some do, um, or many do, I think. And I don't know if you've talked in your uh, program about the Adverse Childhood Experiences uh, work out in California at Kaiser Permanente, but, you know, uh, they've demonstrated empirically, you know, that if you've got four or more adverse childhood experiences, you are 11 times more likely to become an IV drug user. I mean, that's just mind-blowing. It is. Um, But so if a person has experienced trauma, they're likely to be mistrustful. Now add to that being a a drug user who has experienced trauma, they often have had what I call treatment trauma. We were talking about it at the beginning. They've been kicked out. They've been punished for using drugs by their family, by the police, by treatment programs, by people in the emergency room. So those folks are coming in to any kind of treatment situation expecting, you know, we call it negative transference, right? But expecting to be judged, yes. to be hurt. So it seems to me that it's on us as providers to figure out how do we create safety? How do we prove that we're trustworthy? And I think for me, being a radical and transparent harm reductionist is one of the most powerful ways to begin that process. And I'll say, you know, I don't presume to know anything about your drug use, about what goals make sense to you. I've just met you. So maybe we can create this good partnership and work collaboratively to help you figure out what your healthiest relationship is to drugs, you know, and I'll walk with you as we figure that out together. I like that. I'll walk with you. And often people say, wow, you know, nobody's ever talked to me like that before. Yeah. And sometimes they start crying. I can believe it. I could feel it myself when you said, I'll walk with you. I was picturing, I was picturing you walking with me and how Mm -hmm. good that felt to be be going along with what I'm dealing with. And now I've got somebody to walk with me. I want to tell you something you you might get a kick out of, which is in that program, the Coke Enders Alcohol and Drug Program. I detoxed 1,500 people at Wilbur Hot Springs over a 10-year period. Wow. And cocaine, alcohol, heroin, those were the three majors. Very little marijuana, uh, uh, a little meth, but mostly cocaine, alcohol, and heroin. The most serious withdrawal symptom of those 1,500 people, serious meaning painful, uncomfortable, was coffee. I had wow. someone. I had someone who was a major coffee drinker. A doctor from Ohio who came out was suffering from severe depression. Why he came to Gokender's alcohol and drug program was strictly because a friend of his referred him, and he came. He was drinking coffee all day long, constantly from the pot. Every time he went and got a patient, he got a cup of coffee. The withdrawal he went through was more severe than any of the cocaine or the uh, one alcohol person came close, but the coffee person, the withdrawal was massive headaches to the point of crying. It was quite traumatic. And the second worst withdrawal was a person who was hooked 
on Diet Coca-Cola, which had caffeine in it. Wow. And it was also a caffeine withdrawal, massive headaches. I thought you might, you know, enjoy hearing that because it was quite illuminating to me. Congratulations on such a wonderful program. Of course, I knew about it at the time. I got into the field in 19... 82. Oh, okay. I I got in as a young uh, therapist. Of course, I knew about coke enders. Uh Uh Uh-huh. I'll tell you another another cute story then. I had an actress come from Israel and people were making a big fuss about that. And I try to vet the patients as much as possible beforehand, get their doctors if they were referred, find out, you know, what we were dealing with. Hmm. So he sends her, I talked to to her doctor in Israel, he sends her over, she comes. I'm sitting upstairs. I get a I get a a, a message. You got to come down to the kitchen. We got an incident. She's laying on the floor, convulsing in the mm. kitchen. I see what's going on. I take a, a a wooden spoon and I put it in her mouth to open up her mouth so she doesn't choke on her tongue. I knew enough to do that. When I did that, her tooth flies right out out of her mouth. She immediately after I did it sits up and she's fine. I'm feeling terrible. It's like I just broke a tooth out of an an Israeli actress's mouth. I'm like, oh my God. I'm just like, oh, this is terrible. And I say to her what I just did. And she laughs. And I said, what are you laughing about? She says, it happens all the time. It's a cap. (laughs) It turns out that what they didn't tell me, the doctor in Israel, was that in addition to cocaine, she was using Valium, and it was the Valium withdrawal that caused that, and that's what it was, and I wasn't told about it. But she yeah. ended up okay, but it was it's a story of my life with that tooth that I thought you'd get a kick out of. Can I share with you a, um, a short story about me and my coffee addiction? I'd love it. I think I, I finished, when I finished college, I was about 21, and um, uh, I d- decided for some strange reason that I was going to try to quit coffee. So I went away to Martha's Vineyard, actually, um, for a week. Oh, nice. And the first day, I was fine. The second day, I started to have some craving for coffee. I was missing it. The third day, I woke up and I was completely insane. <sighs> I, you know, I jumped in the car and I needed to get an espresso. Like, I did not want, you know, you know, gas station coffee. I mm-hmm. needed an espresso. So I'm driving around the island of Martha's Vineyard, and this is way back when. They didn't have espresso machines on every corner. And, I mean, I must have driven around for two hours until I finally found a place to have an espresso. And it was, I, you know, I was in insane withdrawal. So I know exactly what you mean. And, you know, there's an interesting thing to think about for those folks that are, you know, working in this area. Very often there's a alcohol caffeine connection, right? Because people drink a lot at night, they wake up hungover, and they start pouring coffee down to get through the day. And I've had a number of patients where this was the case who cut back or or stopped the drinking and felt very good about it, but then they would begin to have very, very strong cravings around five o'clock. And with one patient in particular, it dawned on me to ask him about his coffee 
consumption. And he told me that when he was drinking very, very heavily, he would make himself two huge um, pots of espresso and just shoot them down to get himself up and going. When he quit drinking, he was still drinking the same amount of coffee. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that would give him a huge boost. And about five o'clock in the afternoon, he would crash. Yes. And there would be this craving for alcohol. Um, so we then, you know, so it's important to be thinking about how do different substances, you know, how do people use them in a way to balance yes. and medicate different sort of symptoms. I mean, it's very complex and interesting. And that's why our intake interviews as practitioners is so important that we include things as coffee and sugar in the in the intake interview because people can go, you know, so overboard with those, no question. And coffee is another one that really has a lot of advertising going for it, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. I want to ask you a question. I'm going to switch now, if I may, uh, sure. to uh, something you commented on your book that really caught my attention. You said a hundred million people suffer from problematic substance abuse issues, and you then said twenty million have severe issues. Now I'm familiar with the twenty million number because ten percent, roughly, of the country, twenty, thirty million, and so on. A hundred million with problematic substance abuse issues is a staggering number. It's a staggering number, Andrew. I know to think that that I mean. I, I, I'm just awed by it. I've never seen that number before so large, and you're shaking your head. Do you have yeah. any more comments to share with yeah. us about that? Yeah. First of all, I, I want to make one comment, and maybe we can get into this, uh, the data a little bit more. But, you know, what I discovered back in 1982 or during the 80s about, you know, the failure uh, of, the, of the mainstream approach to help the majority of people um, is still true today unfortunately. Um, And whereas in the 80s, um, the HIV AIDS crisis drove the need for harm reduction, today it's the overdose crisis and drug poisoning crisis that killed the most people in history last year and a million over the last 20 years. So that's driving the sea change right now um, to... um, uh, you know, to embrace harm reduction. So yeah, that number, those numbers you mentioned that about 20 million, 22 million year after year, you know, so the, the, the federal government does a national household survey of drugs and health, and they go out and they talk to loads and loads of people and estimate, you know, how many people are using various drugs. They break it down by age, they break it down by region, etc., And then they break it down by um, the intensity of the drug. So substance use disorder is when you're using substances and you meet certain criteria, a certain number of problems that are associated with that. So that 20 million number is people who meet criteria for substance use disorder. But the federal government estimates that another 100 million are using substances um, in patterns that don't meet the criteria for substance use disorder, but have some significant uh, public health consequences. Um, and there are also private think tanks. Columbia Casa is a private think tank at Columbia. If you go to their website, they estimate that number too, about 100 million people. It's mind-boggling. But just consider binge drinkers, and the government estimates that there are about 60 million binge drinkers in the United States. They don't meet substance use criteria 
five or more drinks at a sitting. But one binge, one time a month, can kill you, right? If you if you get too drunk and fall in front of a car or a subway, right? So that and then there they estimate that there are thirty million who they consider to be heavy drinkers. Again, don't meet substance use criteria. I mean, substance use disorder. But they're drinking five or more drinks five times a month, you know, and this has significant public health consequences. Now, but let's also broaden the view to look at all of the recreational users who are maybe don't have a disorder. They don't, they're not overly in trouble, but they're using drugs on a poisoned, from a poisoned illicit drug supply, poisoned by fentanyl. All of those folks, you know, are putting themselves at risk for death. Now, we might wonder, why do you want to take the risk? But, you know, humans take risks. That's another part of the harm reduction kind of view that we need to accept that people take risks. We drive cars and and motorcycles fast. We go skiing. We do all sorts of, you know, risky, crazy things. So um, those hundred million folks are not going to go to substance abuse treatment, and they're not going to go to psychotherapy often at least not for the substance use. They may come in for other things, for relational issues, for anxiety, depression, for life stress, uh, or whatnot. So I think that every practitioner who is seeing people who are coming for help needs to have some familiarity with how do you assess, you know, when a person is using a substance that may not be completely controlling their lives, but may have some negative impact, right? And how do you create a safe space to invite people to really talk about that in a meaningful way and talk about risk and how you reduce risk? And so I would think that this harm reduction therapy frame is one that every person who's in a helping profession um, should know something about so that they can be alert to the fact that some percentage of their clients and their patients could use, you know, a non-judgmental, curious query about, you know, how do you use substances in your life? And and how does it help? What do you love about it? You know, because people do these things because they work. And then, you know, do you ever have any concerns at all that that might be worth talking about? Creating that safe space to evaluate together, assess together, and kind of do some harm reduction together, potentially. Here's a problem that I had in the 80s when I brought into question the abstinence model. Mm. And when I when I brought up the harm reduction, although we didn't call it that, but when I when I addressed this, uh, the issues, here was the thing that was thrown at me by other professionals. Mm-hmm. I would I would quote Claude Steiner. Now Claude Steiner was a student of Eric Burns, and Eric Byrne wrote a famous book called Games People Play, which you're familiar with. And and Claude Steiner, who was a buddy of mine, was a was was Eric Burns' crown prince. And he wrote a book called Games Alcoholics Play. Uh-huh. And what what Claude acknowledged in that book is that there's a percentage of alcoholics who can succeed at controlled use. And he was vilified for it. But I knew he was correct from my own work and my practice. But here's what was thrown at me. And it was scary. People said, if you practice controlled use and the person who's trying to control their use because you said it's possible as their doctor 
and they go out and kill somebody in their car, you're going to get sued and you're going to lose your license. And that for a you know, fairly young guy that I was at the time, you know, late 30s, 40s, was, was frightening. Mm-hmm. And so what I would have to say and what I chose to say to my patients, maybe I would, out of cowardice, possibly, I'd have to look at that, but maybe out of reality is I would say to, look, somebody I trust says that there's a percentage of the population who can succeed with controlled use. My own experience tells me that he's right, that there are people who can succeed. But here's the issue. How do we identify which ones? Because everybody would prefer to be a controlled user than to quit altogether. Wouldn't Mm -hmm. I, if I were in your position, if you gave me an option, could I cut back and use reasonably rather than, of course I'd rather. But how do we identify them? And so I would say to the patients in group therapy, if I pick the wrong person and you go out and kill somebody, you know, I got to deal with it and so do you. How do we know which of you is the controlled use candidate, right? So it was sort of a hedge and I knew I was hedging. Yeah. How do you deal with that in the modern world? Now it's 40 years later. Yeah. I, yeah. I figured out a way to deal with it. Um, Please, because I'm still in practice and I'll use what you tell me. Okay. So- <laughs> Going back to Alan Marlat, who we call the godfather of harm reduction therapy, who introduced me to harm reduction. He introduced Pat Denning, who was another major contributor to harm reduction. He was just a wonderful mentor and and friend to many of us. Um, He suggested that the philosophy embedded or or that, that gets expressed in harm reduction practice is what he called compassionate pragmatism. And the way I understand that is that, you know, compassion is what drives us to support people in reducing their suffering. Um, But the pragmatic part is that we need to be approaching uh, what we're doing, not from an ideological standpoint, but from a pragmatic standpoint. And one of the pragmatic realities is people are going to do what they're going to do. Or, or another way to put it, people are doing what they're doing. Um, and we have limited ability to affect what people do. That is, to, to, to coerce. In fact, that's that, you know, coercing and threatening and cajoling and pressuring and pushing actually often, we know, actually elicits the opposite reaction. What I've called a submit-rebel mind. You know, you submit to me because I'm the doctor or I'm whatever. And then uh, sooner or later, the person rebels in order to gain some sense of agency, autonomy, right? Authority, personal authority. So the harm reduction approach says, I'm not going to ask you to submit to my higher authority at all, because actually you have the responsibility. You have the expertise ultimately in your own life experience, right? So I can't tell you if you're a person who can moderate or not. And we don't have the science. So those people that say you can't, they don't have the science either. A harm reductionist would never say, I believe you can moderate your use. That would be really irresponsible. What I say is that maybe we can answer that question together. Like you're committed to trying to moderate your use. So if you're dead set on doing that, it's probably better if you do that with support. That is, attempting to discover whether moderation is a realistic outcome for you. So with education, with skills, with experiments, with 
having a, you know, I, I have a lot of ideas about how you might go about answering that question, right? Clarifying what does moderation mean, uh, both in terms of subjective experience, in terms of objective drinking, in terms of the impact on you, right? Um, so let's figure out what moderate drinking looks like, and let's figure out what are all of the vulnerabilities that have you over drinking, and see if we can address those to support the moderation attempt. And then let's see how it goes. And what what emerges uh, for some people is that they can actually moderate their behavior toward stable moderation. Um, And what other people discover is that not because I have a disease, but pragmatically, every time I take a sip of alcohol, I suddenly become overwhelmed with this desire to get wasted because that's really what my, what my relationship to alcohol is about. And if I don't want to destroy my life, um, then that can become a motivator for people to really commit to abstain. Um, so the, the answer to the question of can I moderate or do I need to abstain then emerges out of people's actual lived experience with their attempts. Um, and even AA says it's an inside job, you know, <laughs> and what, what we're trying to do is support people in doing that inside job, kind of that personal discovery mm-hmm. of what's realistic for me. Um, so you see a lot of people coming through harm reduction therapy, successfully moderating and choosing abstinence. Question, does what you're saying about people successfully moderating with the modern harm reduction methods that you're talking about does it apply to cocaine and heroin as well as alcohol, or is it pretty much alcohol-related? It, it applies to all drugs. Um, I, I mean, I would say that, you know, each drug has a, has a different risk-benefit profile, um, just like, you know, and have different um, features to the addictive process, like we were t- saying before, coffee or caffeine seems to have one of the worst withdrawal syndromes. Um, But also different people respond differently to different drugs. So, you know, we think of heroin, cocaine, crystal meth as being the really bad ones, you know, uh, that you can't moderate. Uh, But we don't have the data because it's all underground. Some of us therapists who are working in harm reduction settings actually have patients coming in. Like I had a patient come in three weeks ago. Very interesting. She's a uh, professional woman, uh, highly educated from a foreign country. Um, and she said on the phone, she said, Doc, I'm, you know, I'm using a little more than I'd like of something. And so I'd like to come in and talk about it, see what I need to do. She came in and sat down and this very well put together, you know, woman who's in advertising, I think. Um, she said, did I tell you the drug that I'm using? And I said, no, I was aware she hadn't. She said, well, it's heroin. I, you know, I've seen and heard everything, but I was still a little shaken up, you know, mm-hmm. taken by surprise. I said, oh, tell me about it. She said, well, you know, she's in her 50s. She'd been using heroin since she was 20, recreationally. Mm-hmm. Recreationally. Mm-hmm. Yeah, me and my friends got into it back then. I've had the same dealer. It's never created problems in my life. But during the pandemic, I've been more isolated and I found myself starting to use more. So that's a story that most people out there don't hear, right? And we talked about actually her goal was to stop for a while in order then to see if she could return to controlled moderate use. Yeah. 
Um, I would say that, I, I mean, my, my bias or my, my guess based on my experience over many years is that certain drugs are easier to moderate than others. But th- there's also the, the pers- individual personal factor. Yes. Um, let's just say you're a terrible driver, Richard. You've gotten into a number <laughs> of uh, a number of terrible accidents, right? But you're also a stubborn guy, and you have to drive for work. And you know, you live in California. You need a car, right? So you are not. And so maybe your loved ones would say, "Hey, please, you know, you're a terrible driver." please don't ever get behind the wheel again. We love you. But you might say, you know what? I'm going to commit myself to figuring out why I keep getting into these accidents. You know, is it a skill deficit? Is it an attentional deficit? Is it, you know, an emotional issue? You know, I get into road rage with people on the road. You know, what what is it? Let's assess it and then see if we can then, um, you know, help you with targeted skills and strategies to address those deficits and really learn to become a great driver. Um, some people who are determined, who are self-aware, who are you know motivated and um, open to really learning, can do it. Others, you know, are just they don't have those those ingredients that are conducive to that kind of success. But um, my sense is that that's part of what we would kind of look at together in that question of can somebody moderate or not? Well, your intuition is absolutely amazing because you nailed me on the driving. No, not really. Yes, yes, yes. My, my, My family would love it if I didn't drive a car anymore. But fortunately, I'm not exactly the character you, but I'm close. I don't have accidents when moving. I have accidents around the parking lot. <laughs> around the house, bumping into <laughs> bumping into things, or in a supermarket parking lot, <laughs> and <laughs> it's so funny you said that they would. And uh, anyway, and they're always worrying about me texting while I'm driving or talking on the telephone. So I'm going to take this seriously and start practicing what you said. To oh, imp- I will imp- I will improve my skills. Well, oh, that's wonderful. You, yeah, you you answered the question about you know about the liability about the liability. Well, I mean because I, you recognize that it was an issue and it was a fear and there were a lot of fear stories. By the way, in terms of each substance having its own nature in terms of difficulty. You know, I heard all the scare stories and saw the Frank Sinatra movie, The Man with the Golden Arm, that scared the hell out of the public, and how if you try heroin once, you'll become addicted, and if you have cocaine twice. So I tried all those things. I, I tried taking heroin every day for a, a, a several days and, and smoking it, and I tried cocaine and taking it every day, sniffing it up my nose. And um, But again, you have to take into account all the things that you wisely said my background, my history, the psychosocial, why I was doing it, because obviously it, mm. it, it didn't set in. But again, we I had all those other factors going, so it wasn't really a great experiment. But at least I proved to myself that I, if I wanted to, I could try these things and use them for several or more days in a row and then say goodbye and never bother with it again. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I certainly had an experiential learning of why heroin is so attractive to a certain percentage of the heroin users because there's instant zero pain in the body, both physiologically and psychologically. It just yeah. wipes it out almost immediately. Quite quite something. 
And, and, and of course, with, with cocaine, there's a, an amazing excitement. It's not quite orgasm, but it's, it's a very exciting uh, substance. But it's, uh, as we know, the, the, the opportunities for getting into trouble, if you continue with it as such, that when you have a background that we have, you don't allow yourself to go further, which isn't the case with our patients because they bring other things to the table that obviously, you know, obviously get them in trouble. We're, we're coming to the end of our time. I'd like to pause and allow you to pause and think, is there anything else you'd like to tell the public about harm reduction psychotherapy any any tidbits any goodies that we missed you know this is this is that time like if you if we finish the interview and then you're sitting and and having a glass of water 5 minutes from now and you're thinking you're saying oh shucks i wish I, oh there's your water great oh shucks i wish i would have said that so this is the oh shucks time just in case well thank you uh, and first of all this has been a wonderful conversation for me it's really just a joy and a pleasure to talk with you and exchange ideas and experiences. Um, so I really uh, appreciate uh, and I have a lot of gratitude for the invitation and to be here. Um, and I do think, you know, harm reduction, I've devoted my life to harm reduction because I think that um, people who use drugs suffer and suffer and suffer. Many of them suffer, and that's why they're using drugs. But many, many suffer because they use drugs. Uh, there's criminalization, there's stigmatization, there's bad treatment, you know, suffering people using drugs, going to treatment, and then getting blamed, you know, for continuing to use drugs rather than listened to. And in a way, the essence of a harm reduction approach is listening. You know, we before we can offer somebody something uh, that's going to be helpful to them, whether we're a therapist, a doctor, a loved one, a concerned significant other, you know, a clergy person, we have to first listen. We have to create a space to help people feel safe enough to bring us into their most vulnerable parts, their most vulnerable experiences. So that's really what a harm reduction approach is about, creating safety, creating relationship, creating an alliance where we're working together. And how do you do that? You know, you, I mean, it, it, in a way it almost seems so simple, but um, being compassionate, being curious, uh, not, not presuming to know what others are about, right, creates a space to invite people to feel like I'm going to be heard, so I'll share with you. You know, we don't kick people out of treatment at my center. We don't drug test people. We create safety and relationship, and then people come. You know, the unmotivated addict, quote, addict, comes and feels motivated because they hear about what we're doing. People come into our spaces, and they feel safe. They open up. People are suffering, and if you create that kind of safety, then people will invite you to support them on their process and their journey. So I think that that's a message that needs to get out um, to change these terrible narratives that have dominated our culture. So it's not just a change in treatment. I think it's a change in our social narratives, in our culture. And the other thing is we're all drug users. So even that idea that there are the addicts or the drug users that are the, the suffering ones or the bad ones. I think it, it dichotomizes in a way that's really problematic because we all have suffered with substances at one point or another, whether it's too much salt, too much sugar, too much fat, too much cake, too much, you know, whatever. 
yes. meat, you know, uh, or maybe too much alcohol or too much, you know. So I'd also suggest that we all think about how it's not an us then thing, but it's an us thing. And there's much more universality and commonality in the experience that people who struggle with drugs have with, you know, who identify as being people that struggle with drugs as all of the rest of us. Beautifully said, Andrew. And thank you so much for being with me today on Mind, Body, Health and Politics. It has been a pleasure. And I'm very glad it was a pleasure for you as well. Folks, here's the book. If I can get it on the screen properly, there it is, Harm Reduction Therapy. And there's Dr. Andrew Tatarski. You want to take a look at the book, tell your friends about this interview. There's a lot to learn because when you sum up what Andrew was saying, he's talking about spreading compassion and understanding. And I think my big takeaway about his version of harm reduction is when he said, I walk along with you. And don't we all, when we're suffering from somebody, something in this world, don't we all wish we had someone to walk along with us? And thank you all for listening to today's broadcast of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. If you want to send a, uh, an email in, send it to info at Mind, Body, Health, and Politics or producer at Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. Listen in again next time or go to the archive where all our programs are there for you to hear. Until then, this is Dr. Richard Miller reminding you that good health is worth fighting for and it's essential for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness.